Well, good morning, everyone. I think I'm going to proceed in what you might think is a kind of reverse order. We began yesterday by looking at the future. Then we looked, I hope anyway, at the present. Now we need, and I want us to go back and think about the past. And that's not a retrograde progression, that's reverting to the place from which everything stems, on which everything depends. Because everything we talk about hope depends ultimately upon Christ our Lord. And we have to remember that if we are inspired by hope, so was he. If I can quote to you the words that you all know from Hebrews 2, he talks about looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he too had hope. He looked forward to a joy that was set before him. And if you think about it, if Jesus was human, if he was like us, he needed hope. We all need hope. Human beings are made that way, that they cannot live without future. We are future-oriented creatures, and the Lord himself no less. And if we put ourselves into his position as we think about his crucifixion, there he was, faced, humanly speaking, with the blank wall of death, of nothingness. And what sustained him? He had, Hebrews is saying, hope that lay beyond it. And when we talk, think about the hope of Jesus, I think we ought to think of more than just the prospect that he will live or even that he will have power. What did he hope for? That's really why we had Psalm 22 as our reading. And it begins with that cry that we're so familiar with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think at the most elemental level, if Christ was, as I say, like us, he must, with every fibre of his being, have desired simply to live, because we all do. More than that, as the, the following verses go on, as he thinks about the, the scorn and the derision to, to which he's been subjected, it's clear that he also wanted, needed a sense of vindication, that he hadn't spent his life to no purpose, that his belief that he was serving the Father wasn't just an illusion. You remember, perhaps from Isaiah 49, where there's that verse where the servant says, I have laboured in vain, I have spent my strength for naught. And as I say, if Jesus was human, he must have had those moments when that thought must have crossed his mind as he found himself um, so very alone, relatively speaking, and with apparently such little fruit from his, his labours. So he, he wanted and needed and hoped that there would be vindication and meaning given to his sufferings. And then there is a further thought. He, he talks in verses 9 and 10 about in this psalm about um, 
You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. He's saying there that his past, his life with God, the sense of the closeness with God that he has always felt, that too is part of his hope. He wants that to continue. He wants it to be restored and renewed beyond the thing that's about to happen to him. So one element in the hope of Jesus lies in the notion of the continuation and the consummation of that relationship. You're all, I suspect, familiar with Luke chapter 9, where Luke writes that, um, and I quote, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we tend to read that passage in the sense of a sort of grim determination. He set his face. He's going to stoically suffer what lies before him. But I don't think that's what Luke's really writing because he also says when the time came for him to be received up or however your translation renders it he wanted to be received up and it's a word that's used in the New Testament a lot for the um, ascension of Christ he is received up it's also used in in the sort of occasion where um, the other disciples receive Paul into the ship when he rejoins them on the journey. You take someone into your own company. And that's what Jesus is looking forward to. He's looking forward to be taken up into the presence and the company of his Father. It's a thought you can find, by the way, in in one or two Psalms. Um, If you look in Psalm 49, if you've got a Bible open, um, Psalm 49, verse um, 15, he says... God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. He will receive me to himself. And still more obviously in Psalm 73, where a very similar thing is said, um, there the the psalmist actually says, um, verse 23, um, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. That's all his present life as it's leading him on. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. So he is going to the Father. That's his destination. And it's better than anything else that there is. He says in the next verse... um, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my heart and my portion forever. And that wonderful word, portion, he is is the thing that's given to me. If I have that, I have everything. And that's what he wants. He wants to have the Father, in a sense, by being with him in his company. It's where he belonged. If you read the Septuagint version of that, it um, uses the Greek word that's also used in Philemon's little, the little letter to Philemon, where um, Paul writes of Philemon and he says, um, prepare a room for me because I hope to be released to come and join you. So receive me into your house. Have a space and a room ready for me. And that's how... 
here Christ or this the psalmist and I think we can read Christ as being that psalmist for the purposes of this um, this is how he views his going to the Father there is a place prepared for him it had always been prepared for him and it had always been his longing right from boyhood as that prayer remember the Psalm 22 said from his mother's womb onwards and you may remember in Luke 2 when Jesus is um, apparently lost and his parents return and they find him and he says to them, you remember as some translations have it, don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? And he did and that's where he belonged and that's where he was going there for. Now on the other hand, um, Paul writes on more than one occasion that God delivered him. He handed him over He handed him over to the world of men and he had to pass through this world of cruelty and of rejection and of unbelief and of derision. And you can imagine, can't you, how this man who feels himself really drawn to the Father and belonging with the Father, how what a trial that must have been for him, how his soul must have shrunk from the, the violence, the godlessness, the, the, the foolish blindness of men. And amid all the burdens that he bore and the, the disappointments and the exhaustion at times and the limitations of flesh and the temptations from which he was not immune and the hostility and the uncomprehending materialistic attitudes, even of his disciples, how much he must have longed to be at last where he belonged, that he would be received up. So as he thought about the cross, as he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he was in a sense certainly facing terrible suffering and torture, but he also was going to the gateway that would take him to the Father, and he was able to look beyond and see more than suffering. See not only the death, but its outcome, and the the ascending, and the, the joy of being where he belonged with the Father. That surely is the joy that was set before him. But it isn't all. You, you may remember in the um, <clears throat> first chapter of Philippians that um, Paul says he's in a strait between various possibilities, and one of them is that he should depart. There was, immediate death would be very nice because he, the next thing he would know he would be with the Lord where he would like to be. But then he reflects and says, but actually it's more useful for you if I survive this and come out of it and are able to continue my labours for you. Well now if Paul thought that, how much more Christ? And Psalm 22 reflects exactly that very profoundly. Um, The psalm doesn't quite um, express a a theology of the cross, but it comes quite close. Because the the first passage, the first half of the psalm, is devoted, as you know, to that description of Christ's sufferings. And then, without any transition, we come to its consequences. And the consequences that the psalmist sees are that he will be able to tell other people that God had not abandoned him, but had been merciful to his servant and had saved him. 
And if you, as you, the psalm goes through, he sees that message going to more and more and more people. It's like when you throw a stone into water and the ripples go out, circle by circle, ever larger. That's what, that's what the psalmist sees. And if you look, you see in verse um, 23, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then as you go on, you come in verse um, 25 to the great congregation. It's already bigger. And then when you get to verse um, 27, it's got to all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations. And then when you get to um, verse 30, it's posterity, future generations. So it isn't stop with a simple spatial extension, it also has a temporal extension through time, through generations. What he did and the way in which God cared for him will become known to and will be the cause of ever more people praising the Father through it and for it. And in the New Testament you see the, the reality of that um, in, in Hebrews 2, there's a, a picture of the, the Son coming to the Father and saying, Behold, here am I and the children that you've given to me. In other words, he's presenting to the Father, as it were, you might almost say proudly, like a father with his children, presenting to the Father the fruits of his labours. It's what he also does in, in John 17, you remember, where he says, effectively, I, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. I haven't lost any except the son of perdition. And he's almost saying again, here we are. And I want these people to be with me. So that when I come to you, I won't come empty-handed. I won't come just me. I will bring with me all these other people who have known about you and known what you have done for me. And he prays that they may be sanctified so that they're able to go. Hebrews 2 has a nice expression for it. It, it talks about him um, in a later verse. It talks about him um, taking upon himself, literally, or, or taking hold of, actually is what the Greek means in verse um, 16, the offspring of Abraham. And the same word comes back again in chapter 8, when it talks about um, God taking his people by the hand and leading them out from Egypt. And that's the picture of what, what Christ has done. He's taken hold of people, taken them by the hand to lead them in the direction that he's going. A related, though, though slightly different verb is used when um, Paul talks in Philippians about the way that Christ has apprehended him. And it is a word that could be used, in fact, for being arrested. You know, it's the word that's used when the, the, um, the woman in adultery is taken in the very act. They've caught her, they've got, grabbed her, arrested her. And Paul is saying, effectively, you know, he, he got hold of me. He arrested me to take me. And what they're all saying in different, different variations of the basic verb to take is that there is an action of God in Christ which takes hold of men and women. Well, it's important to say and women because so easily, you know, unfortunately impressions get created. Um, he takes hold of people, us, 
And the point that, of course, is that he doesn't just grab us and take us. He does something else that's very important. He turns us round. Um, a very important, although I think un underestimated, little verse comes at the end of Acts 3. When Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, you notice he doesn't say he sent him in order to be the propitiation for your sins. He didn't send him to make atonement for you. He doesn't, he's not come in order to satisfy God's righteousness or to persuade God to be merciful doesn't have to do anything to God but he does have to change us to change men make them change direction and that's what this this basic verb here means to turn people about and that's what he did with Paul you know he arrested him first and then he turned him around and made him and made many men follow him in his new his direction and when that direction as we've seen was towards the father to bring them home to God. And he showed them, as I was saying yesterday, what his kingdom is like, how it will be, what the Father's values are. And by this showing of himself, or by demonstrating it in his own life, he was turning them round and winning them for the new values of God's kingdom, the values of self-giving, and so that they become workers with him in that process of making the ripples from the stone go out ever wider so that more people are embraced by it. Now we're going to, in a moment, have the breaking of bread and it's helpful for us, I think, to go back in our minds to the first time this was done. It was an occasion very different from this in one sense, that the people who were there were not there voluntarily, they were there almost because the Lord had taken them there. Not entirely of their own will, one suspects. But he celebrated this little ceremony that we go through for very specific purposes. There was, of course, an existing parallel with a previous deliverance. The, the Passover echoes, of course, are there too. But he was giving them as well the flavour of the future. There they were seated together with him and that is how they will be ever with the Lord. And there they were experiencing it to be that they will be with him. And they're the people whom he wanted to be with him. Wanted them then and he wants them in the future with him. And so that was being enacted for them. And of course, these are the same men who he prayed for and spoke about in, in such lofty spiritual terms in his prayer in John 17 at the same occasion. And yet we know that they're a, an anything but, um, you know, totally dedicated band. They're full of doubts and fears. They're about to run away and desert him. But that changes nothing. He still wants them because he knows what they can become what they will become and what the effect of his dying and resurrection will be upon them. 
that they are indeed going to be turned round and made able to follow him. And so before they had really reached that stage, he gave them in advance a symbol that would give them hope, that would remind them of what lay ahead of them, and at the same time remind them of how it had all been done, how it had been accomplished. They had this permanent reminder of his self-giving to turn them, to keep on turning them when they tended to turn back again, to turn them towards the Father and his way. Well, as I say, their participation in that event was involuntary, I suspect, largely. But ours is not. We have chosen to be here. I presume you all have chosen to be here. You did all want to be here. You're here because you want to be. Because you have been apprehended. He has taken you. He has turned you about and invited you to go with him to the Father. And he's shown us the way. So this ceremony, in this wonderful way, looks back to how it was first done and it looks forward because it's anticipation of being with the Lord forever and sharing in the banquet, the party, the wedding, the, the, the joy, the delight. Remember that figure of dancing yesterday? To share in all those things with him in the beauty of his kingdom. And it unites past and future in the present because here we are with our Lord who is, though not visible here, actually presiding and who will give us in due course. I'm sorry, Richard, but he's really the boss. He's presiding. He will give us the bread and the wine and invite us to share it with him again because he wants us to share it with him in the future. We wanted to be here, and I presume, and I'm sure, we want to be there when it comes. And if we do this properly and rightly in the right spirit, as I know we will, then we shall be.